Hello and welcome to Crop It Like It's Hot, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and The Crop Tech Show and hosted by me, Alice Dyer. In this special podcast episode, in collaboration with the British Farming Awards, I sit down with three past winners of the Arable Innovator Award. Jake Freestone of Overbury Enterprises, who won last year's award and was also runner-up in 2015. Andrew Francis of Elverdon Farms in Norfolk, who won in 2017. And Jonathan Boaz of Mill Farm in Worcestershire are all going to be joining me today. If you've made a key change to improve your farm and are open to exploring new possibilities to safeguard your business, or maybe you know someone that has, you can enter the Arable Farmer of the Year Award this year sponsored by Oxbury Bank. But don't leave it too long because entries close soon on the 25th of June. The awards night this year, which is sponsored by Morrison's, will take place on October the 20th with a new venue, a new host and a refreshed list of award categories. It's a great night, a great party and well worth entering. Just ask Jeremy Clarkson about that one. And finally, you can still get one CPD point for tuning into this podcast. Just email the podcast title and your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Right, let's get started. LG of Iron has proved popular with growers across the UK because of its outstanding vigour and disease resistance package. It has very rapid autumn growth, allowing drilling date flexibility to ensure the crop is planted when conditions are best. LG of Iron is the only 8-rated variety for light leaf spot a yield-robbing disease now endemic across the UK. This is shown in its untreated gross output of 111%, 4% higher than any other variety. Learn more and register for Limograin's Oilseed Rape Establishment Expert Panel on Friday 6th of May by visiting lgseeds.co.uk forward slash OSR. Thank you all so much for coming on the podcast. You're all managing such different operations and I think we're in for a really interesting hour. And of course, if you've got any questions for each other, please just bob in. This is a discussion rather than a Q&A, so don't hold back at all. Um, I guess a nice place to start would just be if you could all you know, introduce yourselves, tell us a bit about your farm for any of our listeners that might not know you. Um, so Andrew, I don't know if you wanted to start. Uh, yep. Um... Name's Andrew Francis. I'm uh, farms director at Elverdon Farms. Um, we're a fairly large estate on the Norfolk Suffolk border, border um, farming in the bricks. Um, so we're farming on a sandy loam. Um, so very free draining soils. Uh, they'll blow away if you get them wrong. Um, you can wash them away if you get it wrong. Um, but uh, if you get it right, they're a really good medium for growing root vegetables in, which is really our sort of primary production focus along with some specialist cereals such as malting barley and, and hybrid seed. Excellent, thank you. Jonathan? Right, well I'm not at the end of the spectrum really, totally. We, we farm about um, 600 acres, I talk old language unfortunately, but we, we're, about, we're about 600 acres, um, nearly half of it's permanent pasture, it's 50% grade 4, 50% grade 3B, it should really be a livestock grazing farm, but the economics of arable farming have dictated that we grow crops on it. Um, it's 
extremely difficult land to farm in that it's it's very high in magnesium it's very poorly drained uh, and as much as i uh, embrace the direct drilling technique we just can't quite go to zero till we have to put something through that soil to get some pore space in it otherwise it just it just will not perform and i can still get the best crops if I use a plough, quite honestly, I mean, my agronomist said this year we've got one that we've ploughed and it just stands out as the best. But it's not the way to go forward. I know that. But sometimes we have our arms put up our back a little bit. But anyway, our main thing is we rely very much on grass lays to keep the organic matter right. And we basically steal crops. It, we shouldn't be growing crops, but, but, but we do. And we can get some very good yields but it has to go well for us. So it's a very simple system ours is really. And I would say it's a, it's a lot different. It's a totally the other end of the spectrum for you other two gentlemen, but uh, it's all very challenging for all of us. <laughs> so that's my, my, my claim to fame. <laughs> thanks. And Jake? Um, thanks, Alice. So I'm Jake Freestone. I'm the farm manager at Overbury Enterprises. We are on the Gloucestershire-Worcestershire border, farming about 1,600 hectares. Um, a really mixed farm. Uh, we've got some Evesham series clay, some Sandover gravel, um, and then we go up onto the top of Breeden Hill, about a thousand foot above sea level on uh, Copswell Brash. So we've got three very different soil types, uh, which we're trying to manage mainly combinable crops on. We're combining about 900 hectares a year here. Um, and we also have a quite a large area of permanent pasture. Um, which we graze with uh, an in-house flock of about a thousand North Country mules, uh, which we're lambing just at the end of lambing now, actually, outdoors in April. Uh, we're also a leaf-linking environment and farming demonstration farm and um, have quite an extensive stewardship scheme, have lots of school children around the farm um, and do quite a lot of uh, sort of public engagement, um, PR for UK industry. Um, yeah, that's that's about where we are, really. Great, thank you. And there's so much going on in farming at the moment, it's hard to know exactly where to start with the questions. Um, but I think I'm going to go with crop nutrition. So nitrogen prices are obviously mental this year. And I know a lot of you have been doing or um, you've been doing new or different things for a while to reduce your bagged end. So I wanted to know what your nutrition strategies are now and also what you hope to do more of or differently in the future to mitigate this volatility. Um, Jonathan, I know you've been looking at a few things like compost for a long time. So did you want to start? Yes, I've always looked um, for, for natural fertility as much as possible. Um, composting has always been something for many years that I've been playing with. Um, and and we've, we'll never perfect it, but we try and utilise as much of the material off our own farm as we possibly can, um, even to the extent that when 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 we scrape the the ditches out, we we use that leaf mould and that and put in the compost. All these things are, 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 are very good, and it does it does do a lot of good to get the biology right. But I still advocate that if you want to get reasonable yields, you've got to get a bit out of the bag as well. Like I mean, we can't. We can't get away from using ammonium nitrate, unfortunately, if, if you want to. I mean, we do go a little bit of organic as well, like, but, but the, 
the contrast is quite remarkable, like, you know, I mean, you just don't get that level of production. And you've got to be looking for the tent under the hectares, to be honest, at the moment. But interestingly, talking about the price of nitrogen and the price of grain, I mean, you roughly have to look at it a, a bit like this. I mean, so if you grow, if, if you, in our situation, if you, if you grew, say, um, a four ton or, say, a tent under the hectare crop of wheat, you actually, you're only putting like, uh, sort of, say, 100 weight of, of nitrogen on to get a ton of fertilizer. So, though the fertilizer has gone up dramatically, if you look at how the grain has gone up, and of course, there's so much volatility in it, it's actually more cost effective now to put the fertilizer on with the grain having doubled. Uh, and, and the fertiliser having quadrupled because when you look at the percentage of how much you put on so I think a lot of the calculations that were done early on about reducing the nitrogen have actually gone a bit out of kilter because of the higher grain prices now whether that's going to be sustainable and where these prices are going to set out I don't know but at the moment I, I wouldn't reduce my nitrogen on an you know for an economic point of view, I reduce it for an environmental reason. That's my main reason. So that's where I stand on it at the moment, anyway. I don't know what the other gentlemen think about that. Probably don't, don't agree with my strategy at all. But <laughs> it's, um, I mean, it's a, it's a huge challenge that we're, we're sort of all faced with. There's the economic angle and there's the environmental angle as well in terms of nitrogen uh, leaching into the watercourses and volatilizing into the atmosphere. And I think um, what this has done is focus the mind on how we use it um, in terms of, you know, we just can't splash it around the countryside anymore. And you could argue that we never used to do that, but I think there's always been that over application, that last 50 kilos of N has just been put on, you know, almost regardless. So we've been, um, and, and the return on that last 50 kilos um, is, is nothing most years. Um, so we've we've taken a, a sort of a different approach. We always do quite a lot of soil mineral nitrogen sampling in the early spring, so we can have an assessment of what we've got in the ground, what we've got in the crops, um, then what market we're aiming for. And I guess over the years, we've been doing, just like Jonathan, lots of organic manures going in. Uh, we make our own compost from um, the straw that comes from the stud, which we mix with poultry litter, compost that down. Um, applying poultry litter on its own um, as, a, as a fertilizer, biosolids, so lots of different organic amendments. We're just getting into uh, sort of a, a more uh, grass lay uh, with legumes in it as part of the rotation, um, and, and that's having quite a significant impact in terms of what that's leaving behind. It's, you know, it's all good farming practice, but as, as Jonathan was just saying, actually, it's the economics of arable farming which has sort of pushed the, the livestock, you know, to the to the boundaries, if you like. Um, and, and we probably need to have a bit of a rethink on that. Um, so, yeah, natural fertility, manures, grass lays, composting. I think trying to improve soil organic matter is one of our key aspects. Um, you know, the bigger that organic matter sponge is, the more it can hold on to uh, nitrogen, micronutrients um, and things like that. So... Um, we, we've trimmed everything back a little bit over the probably over the last five or six years, to be honest, as our soil organic matter has improved, our soil structure has improved, roots are able to access more of the soil. Um, 
and yeah, knowing what we've got to start with at the beginning of the year is is definitely helping us make more informed decisions, I suppose. I think um, uh, I think for us, a sort of approach is slightly different. There'll be, there'll be a lot of um, commonality, but slightly differently because of how our soils behave. So we don't have soils that will hold a lot of nutrition for any length of time, particularly if it's very soluble. So, um, you know, I call a phrase soil aponics is how I sort of visualise what we do. Uh, uh, on the sands, it, which is to have the soil in the very best order that you can for for the plant to do and to work and to uh, uh, develop within it, but to apply nutrition in a very controlled, very readily available format. Um, so you just put it into the, into the root zone, try and keep it within the root zone, uh, so you're not leaching um, any, anything through and beyond the rooting zone or lo- losing anything to the atmosphere. So that it, it's all local and it, you, you know, you're effectively really focusing on your nitrogen use efficiency. So it's how much of that nitrogen you put on can you get into the final product uh, that you want to use. That's helping us from a water perspective. So we're also doing some, some trials locally this year with a local water company in the Rivers Trust looking at um, placing fertiliser, particularly in our root crops. So... We already place a large proportion, but actually, can we uh, move even further away from sort of broad acre applications and really hone that down into uh, local placements? And within that, we're looking at um, inhibited nitrogen products as well um, that are sort of slower release and don't volatilise so quickly. Um, so I think it's, it's about continuing to, to look for all the options, continue to look at the efficiencies, not necessarily... Um, less shouldn't necessarily be the instant reaction. You know, as Jonathan points out, the, the sort of cereal price is, is, is sort of compensating quite well for that. I think in the veg world, it's not. You know, there's a lot bigger challenge in the veg world because we haven't seen our commodity prices double or triple. You know, we are still really struggling to get any price inflation. So I think it's, you know, we, we, we sort of think about it slightly differently. Just one other thing I think to, to mention is the sort of the impact on business cash flow and things like that in terms of, you know, being able to fund um, buying fertilizer, you know, June, July, maybe this year, um, depending on when you pay for it, when you're going to get crop sales in. I think for arable farming, that's going to have a huge pressure. Well, not just arable farming. Um, you know, if you're putting fertilizer on grass fields for dairy cows or you know beef sheep, whatever, um, I think cash flow is going to be a real, real challenge. And that's part of the whole nitrogen story as well. Um, and it's, yeah, it's interesting that Andrew mentions the, the sort of the veg price is is not increasing at all um, in in comparison to other sectors potentially. Yeah, I think veg producers potentially face a lot of big challenges coming forward, but we'll move on to that in a bit. Um, so another big challenge that a lot of the industry is facing is obviously the loss of BPS. Um, so do you feel confident that you're able to carry on okay without it? And what are your plans in terms of being involved with new schemes? Jake, did you want to go first on that one? <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've, we've known that this is coming down the line, um, you know, for a number of years now. Um, and it, it will have a huge impact on all of our businesses. Um, what are we doing about it? Well, uh, we've increased um, our area of stewardship um, to try and fix a little bit of income on some of our more marginal land um, in, in terms of how we can integrate that into the, into the livestock and the arable business with, with sort of GS4 uh, grass herbal lays those sorts of things to um, 
to actually enhance the wider environment uh, and as well as helping some of the other enterprises along. Uh, we've looked at some contract farming agreements and we've actually signed up a neighbour next door, um, which we did in 2019. It wasn't the best year to start that off, but we've we've had a good year last year and things are looking okay this year. So um, we're sort of trying to spread the sort of the fixed costs a little bit more. Um, we're paying a lot more attention to the actual costs of the business that we have here um, and how we can, yeah, just keep trying to chip away at those um, increase our lunch and use efficiencies, which is, you know, one of our huge bills. Um, so there's, there's lots to do, but effectively, you know, that BPS, um, can't really be replaced in its sort of totality with, with what we're trying to do. Um, so we've, we've looked at SFI, decided that it's not quite there for us yet. We don't see the full picture of that yet. And I think that's a real, uh, real downfall from from DEFRA and the RPA as to, um, you know, if we're trying to put a jigsaw together and only seeing a little portion in the corner. Um, yes, there's hedgerows coming down the road and, and bits and pieces, but actually it's just really difficult to be able to put all that together, not knowing um, what it's going to look like in its totality. So we've sort of steered away from that at the moment. Um, and yeah, looking to diversify growing different crops. Um, so we've got some quinoa in the ground this year for British quinoa, um, winter linseed, just trying to spread some of the risks of the business um, in, in different crops, all with the backdrop of a very challenging climate, um, which is throwing sort of all sorts of curveballs um, in our sort of general direction at the moment. So it's, um, yeah, it's quite tough. And you're also doing a bit with carbon trading and natural capital and things. Do you think that could potentially be a way to offset some of this BPS loss? I, I do think it will be. Uh, we're not quite there yet. It's sort of tantalisingly close in terms of we've got very good carbon measuring tools now. Um, there's a marketplace, uh, natural capital market, which is uh, up and running. Um but we're, we're just not quite there. It's almost within grasp, but um, not there yet. And farming as we do, we are definitely sequestering significant amount of carbon. Um, and if we can attach a value to that, then that will definitely help um, offset some of the BPS reductions. Uh, but as I say, we're, we're kind of almost there, but yeah, not quite, but it's not far away. And what about you, Jonathan? You're obviously quite a small farm, so BPS must be quite important for you. Well, it, 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 it really is, particularly as a lot of the ground is rented anyway. Um, and what's ba basically what, what the basic payment did, it distorted the difference in the value between better quality land and lower quality ground because obviously it put a bottom in the market, whereas the lower quality ground struggles much more with the productivity which is what you need interestingly enough though i mean we've always managed to make a small profit uh, over and above uh, what the, uh, the payment is but sometimes it's a bit marginal um the way the commodity prices have gone up at the moment uh, if you work it out it's probably more than compensated for what the uh, the that the payment was but i mean the volatility doesn't give you a lot of confidence. Uh, I'm certainly not very confident in what's coming out now. I mean, 
I've always been very keen on environmental schemes and that. But when you look at the payment rates, they're far from adequate to give us a good incentive because like, the costs of doing these things are just too great. There's not a lot in them when you look at it. If you do the job properly, and I like to do them properly, um, you know, so if you want to skimp them and, and just, just, just try and draw the money for doing as little as possible, but that's not the objective. I mean, if you want to do something good for the environment, you've got to do it properly. And if I look at these payments that, that I've been getting in my HLS, and which I've had conversation today as to whether it's prudent to continue with that, which runs out in 18 months. And I've said, quite honestly, those payments are, 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 are 10 years out of date today, like, you know, and we've got to look at something better than that. So I am more than concerned that the new schemes are not going to compensate. So we are going to need to be relying on, on, on more profitability from production, quite honestly, which I think a lot of farmers would like to be there, really, like, you know, but, but we have to be so mindful about the environmental impact of trying to produce more production, because that's going away from what the government want, really. But I'm not totally certain. And I've got to be careful here, because my views on climate change and, and all the emphasis that's being placed on sequestrating carbon. That, see, everything seems to be being piled into that. And I'm a little sceptical that, 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 yeah, I do a lot of research on all this, just how much uh, we need to be going there in that route. I think we need to be looking at a bit of a wider picture than that. I mean, I talk for that, about that for hours, like, you know, and, and I will be probably, uh, out of kilter with the rest of your thinking on this, but I, I, I am very sceptical that the impact, the carbon impact and everything that we are supposed to do is doing the, the amount, the colossal damage it's been reported to do, quite honestly. I think there's other, other aspects at play as well, but that's a different story altogether. And if you want to talk about that subject, I should be, I should be on home territory. <laughs> But I, I like the, this idea, and I'm interested. I, I think, have you got a meeting coming up about this, Jake, next week or to put this carbon storage and something? We do, Jonathan. It's the 25th of May. I don't know whether I'm allowed to plug it, but it's the Green Farm That's Collective. Sweet. I'm going to anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to go to that and learn a bit more. Yeah, it's, it, it's about carbon, but it's also about biodiversity as well. And the, and the points that you raise about stewardship and, and the value that, people put on a Skylark or a Lapwing or whatever, I, I think is very underestimated. And I do think that the wider private purse is probably a, a better place to go to, to actually realise the full value and actually link up with customers um, and, and work together with them, uh, offset some of their carbon. Um, and we can we can have a good old chat about that. But, but the, the thing that excites me as well is more biodiversity. Um, so I was, I was looking for stewardship, actually, it's an AB9 that's going to go into its second year today next to some GS4 herbal lays. And there was a wet patch in there where we had a block drain and there was a lapwing um, floating around up there. And I thought to me, that sort of sums up what we're trying to do. There's red meat production, there's carbon capture and there's biodiversity. Um, what's not to like about that, but actually let's reward the farmers properly so that they can carry on doing all of that stuff. Yeah, that's the thing. There's so much focus on carbon now, but there's 
such a bigger picture to it. There's things like water, wildlife, as you say, it's it's much wider than kind of what the public is being fed, I think. And Andrew, what about you? What 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 are your plans for um SFI and BPS loss? Yeah, I think um excuse me, I think with uh, SFI I'm you know, I'm on board with Jake that it's it's for us it's not fit for purpose. Um I think the reward is far too low um, and uh, at, at the base level. And as you start to move up, it becomes far too restrictive in terms of what we would like to do from a management perspective. And we've, you know, there's a long history of some of the older schemes that had very, really restrictive uh, practices within them that um, actually had, had negative influences because they didn't allow you to be creative as a land manager to to integrate things and to um, to bring in improvements, uh, you know, they're just too too regulated, really. I suppose. Um, I think with the with the BPS, and again, agree with Jake that you know we've seen it coming for for a long way out. But um, yes, we've seen the reduction, but no, we don't know what it looks like beyond it. I think we're all pretty clear it's not going to be the same, and it probably won't even be a fraction or anywhere near being the same. Um, so I think that's that's fairly clear. But I think what we couldn't have seen is all the other factors that are overlaying it as well. And I think, you know, just as a small soapbox moment, I think that, you know, central government should have put the handbrake on dropping the BPS payments and just frozen for a, for a couple of years whilst there's so much turmoil in the industry, so much cost pressure and inflationary pressures. Just literally that was one easy gift that they could do was just don't reduce the BPS and to my mind, you know, they've missed a really big trick there. But we've got to get beyond it. You know, we've got to look for the for the way forward. So um, I think that, um, you know, it's right. But, you know, we, we mustn't lose the focus on food productivity um, from our landscape. Uh, it's a really important part of, of what we do in the UK needs to be um, more food self-sufficient. Um, so we must really focus on really good, top quality, efficient productivity, but in the right places and in the right way. And I think the reward for... Um, for the uh, for the environmental work and the um, uh, um, the whole ecology management that that farm managers do um, needs to be better rewarded. But again, you know, as Jake says, that's going to come from the private purse. It's not going to come from the public purse. We, you know, we can't kid ourselves that they're going to uh, that that's going to help us out and save our bacon. And I think the frustrating thing is 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 the not knowing is we can't plan. Um, you know, we've been involved in probably four or five different elms tests and trials. Um, but, you know, we, we, what are the outcomes? We, you know, we don't know. We haven't seen them. We don't know how they're going to be financially modelled. Um, so it's about, you know, can you get clever about what you're doing, but join up with other people and try to add multipliers? And I think that's the that's that's where the future's got to be. So over in the Brecks, we've got a really good group of farmers um, called the Breckland Farmers Wildlife Network, which is a large proportion of the farmland in the Brecks looking at landscape recovery pilots. So we're looking at local landscape recovery, but also um, um, sort of national as well. So we're looking at how can we manage the really big uh, farmed area to the benefit of the local ecology and to really um, enhance the habitat for um, some of the target species. And I think that's potentially creates a mechanism for a multiplier. Um, but it's early days. It doesn't exist. You know, things as, as Jake highlights it's still quite chaotic and hasn't really settled down and you don't know how it's going to be audited going forward in five or 10 years time. So, you know, I, I'm really sort of reluctant to, to think about locking 
locking things up for really long-term agreements at the moment because I think it's just we don't really know whether that's right or wrong. So I think we've just got to you got to be in it. You got to be amongst it. You got to watch it. But I think just that just a, a, an air of caution. Yeah, definitely. And you're obviously a veg producer. Um, and Jake, I know you let out a bit of land for veg as well. So feel free to jump in. Um, but it feels a bit like we hear how we need to be producing more domestic veg and fruit and things like that. Um, but then we also are moving towards reduced tillage and no soil movement. It's making it harder to find land um, and maybe get government support. Do you feel like that's maybe a threat? I think the um, I, I don't think there's there's a natural correlation between how we farm and a reduction. I think that um, that we can continue to produce what we do and maybe produce even more by just being smart about how we produce things. But but just try not to put things into pigeonholes. I think that's 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 the the key message for me is that things like um, you know when you're looking at regen ag and, and things like that, it's absolutely right in terms of the approach, in terms of keeping roots in the soil and green cover across the soils. But at the moment, there are really big problems with green bridging pests and diseases in the root veg world. So, you know, a lot of these herbal lays um, with legumes and things in are absolutely, you know, the suicidal to do in the veg world because of the carrying across free living nematodes. And we don't have the solutions anymore to control free living nematodes synthetically. So we have to do it biologically and biologically means that some of the you're really restricted on the species that you can use in a lot of these green covers. So I think it's, it's um, um, we can produce more and we can produce it more um, extensively, um, I, I believe, but there's a huge trap door that sits between where we are now and where we need to be that we just have to be really careful how we bridge that gap and, and don't see everybody, you know, food production going to massive decline because all we do is present uh, unintended consequences and problems. Yeah. Yeah, we produce um, baby leaf salad on our farm, so we can't have livestock or anything like that anywhere near it because of the bacteria, but everyone's bringing livestock onto their farm, so things like, you know, finding land that hasn't had livestock is, I think, going to be a bit harder, but... Yeah, and, and you, know, you just look at the explosion with wireworms, uh, you know, in, in, in rotations and now incorporating longer lays and more grass species and that. And there is nothing that will control a wireworm in most of our crops. And they're just, you know, starting to very quietly have a really big impact, impact across a whole lot of um, commercial plant species for food production. And as you're all winners of the Arable Innovator Award, um, and we hope lots of our listeners are considering entering this year, why would you encourage them to enter? I think sometimes, you know, farmers can feel a bit shy about identifying some of the positive work that they do. So what would your message to them be? Jonathan, did you want to go first? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing, really, to bring together all the different members of the farming community and all the different elements who have in this thing. What it does, it, 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 it's a form of education as well, really. I mean, it, it really is an eye-opener that when you go to these awards and that and, and listen to what different people have done, uh, to me, I think it was looking at other, other people and what they'd done and everything as well. The fact that I won it was just, just a shock to me, quite honestly, like, you know, a pleasant one, I have to say, because... Uh, 
<laughs> you know, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do, and, and, and very, very much I would, I would encourage anybody to have a go because if I could have a go and compete with uh, very large scale producers, as has been said, it doesn't matter how big or small you are; it's what you're doing, and we all have something to offer the industry. Uh, and if you're doing something, get it out there and let people know about it because we need to share all this technology, all the things we're doing, uh, and these are good platforms to do it. So I, I would like to see more people get involved, definitely. Yeah, I think it's a good way for kind of raising farming's profile for the public as well. Uh, well, uh, no, 2015 was just a second, actually, I think. So um, it was, uh, I mean, it's a great awards night, I think, to start with. It's, it's a really social event. Um, it's great to see lots of people around, around the country getting together, um, you know, and sharing farming stories and a good beer at the end of the day. Farmers, you know, we spend a lot of time sort of on our own in solitary confinement um, on our farms and actually the the mental health aspect of getting together and you know catching up with old friends and having a beer is really really important uh, it's also great for uh, publicity for farming businesses as well you know if you've got farm shops as well as you know sort of direct marketing it's a huge platform to be able to push um, what you're doing uh, in terms of actual innovation, if we've got, you know, farmers are really good at sharing. Um, we don't necessarily just want to keep a new invention or a new idea to ourselves. It might be different in the veg world, Andrew, but um, <laughs> in the arable sectors and things, you know, sharing is important about what we do. And as a leaf farmer, it's it's that whole, um, you know, sort of education piece in terms of, yes, this is working for us. This is how we do it. This is why we do it. You know, it might work for you, but go and have a go, um, see how you get on. So it's also good for encouragement, I think, of, of the next generation as well to see that um, you can achieve, um, you know, some great things in a fantastic industry and be rewarded for it. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it was a real highlight of the year, actually, the awards night and the whole, and the judging uh, isn't too tricky to uh, to sort of pass as well, so um, it's a it's a good experience all the way around. Excellent. What about you, Andrew? Yeah, no, uh, would echo all those points. Um, I, you know, I think um, I think everybody finds it, and I certainly do. You know, you get inspired by being around inspirational people, and I think that uh, you know that that sort of peer learning, that drive, that push to improve yourselves and your business, I think is really important, and I think you get a lot out of that. And I also find that. Um, you know, whenever, um, whenever I'm challenged to talk about what we do, I tend to refocus. So, you know, you really sort of look, look inward again, just, okay, well, I've got, you know, I'm going to talk to somebody and explain what we do. Well, actually, I'll have to remind myself what we do do and how are we going to move forward. And I think that's that, you know, just challenging yourself to do it raises your game. Even if you, you know, if you don't win, if you don't get to finals night, just the, the fact that you're going through the, the learning process, the thought processes, I think just really, you know, you think about the game, you just take that time out, you know, we, we all get caught in the hurly-burly of the day. So just sit down, focus, have a think, you know, just that as a, a just a result of that, will you will improve and up, and up your game without a doubt. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I guess it's a bit like writing your CV again after being in, in a job for a long time. Um, I've heard it's a very good party as well, although I've never actually been. <laughs> and sticking to innovation, if there's one thing you've done on your farm or, you know, maybe a product you're using or a bit of kit that you've bought, um, that if you could say to our listeners, you should give this a try because it's been really great for me, what would it be? For, for us, I love our pollinator headlands. Um, it's something we've been working on for five or six years, um, we, a, along with sort of Syngenta and Astra as part of Operation Pollinator, and it sort of morphed out of that, that that just on our, on our veg headlands, on uncropped headlands that just used to be um, barren, um, they'd sit waterlogged potentially at times, you know, they may get a bit of uh, uh, sort of surplus um, fertiliser on them from the edge of the crop. Um, to transform those into an environment that is multi-species, species it has you know flowers. It's great for the pollinators. It's great for the invertebrates, but it's actually a management tool as well. So it's rotational. So we move it around the farm, so we can put it next to different habitats. And the fact that we're extending habitats um, from our permanent field margins really, um, really gives chance for the biodiversity to to increase and multiply really fast. But from a management perspective. It keeps the soil structure right. It keeps the weeds off the headlands. It absorbs any uh, any any water that runs off the field from the irrigator. Absorbs any surplus nitrogen. Just acts as a, a as a barrier to um, to any kind of leaching or surface runoff or anything like that. And it improves the soil structure. It holds nutrition as well. So when you follow your veg crop and and drill a combinable crop afterwards, you don't see this sort of barren half half established headlands without a bit of a mess in that. You know, the, the establishment is exactly the same as the middle of the field, even on north facing headlands. And I, you know, I'm absolute fan of it, love it to bits, um, and it's it, it's great. And we're, we're now drilling, um, we must be drilling nearly 100 acres of, of just pollinator headlands now around our veg fields. It's, yeah, fantastic. It's all really simple, but fantastic results. Sounds great. What sort of species, Andrew, are you planting in there? Uh, so we've got clover, um, so there's bursting clover, there's phacelia, um, there's a radish, um, buckwheat, and I always forget the fifth one. Come back to me on the fifth one. Answer's on a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> Borage is what we use, and it's quite nice as well. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just the, the difference, because it's because uh, uh, the Brex is, um, is a real hotbed for, um, for beetles, just that it's quite open, um, so you know they can move around within it fairly well. And the other thing I like about it, you know, we call it the green curtain, but for us it hosts so many predators, and particularly thrip predators, which are really nasty for our onions. So in a, in a hot year, you see the thrips come out from the grass and into the onions, and the onions just go bleached as they take all the chlorophyll out. But since we've been doing this, particularly where we're next to grass margins, you know that. The, 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 these uh, pollinator areas are full of thrip predators and they, they don't seem to get through it. So I think, A, it's difficult to try and, to get across and B, you know, they, hopefully they get eaten as well. A good, really good practical tool for, you know, practical farming and uh, a, ecological benefit as well. Correct. What about you, Jonathan? What What's your innovative piece of knowledge? Well, I do I do, do several different things. Um, basically, I do a very similar thing, as you just said, um, I grow a, a quite a lot of flower strips. We started to grow a little bit of um, heritage wheat this last year or two, which is quite a novel thing. 
uh, and we grow um, we, we grow it in strips. I mean, we do it in a strange way. It's very old-fashioned. I've got an old drill that we grow it in sort of 12-inch rows and then run a steerage hoe through it. Then we leave strips between it uh, and plant all sorts of like corn flowers, any, anything about nature, even chaos vegetable strips, just chuck them in. Um, and it really is very, very, very good to get all these different insects, everything in amongst it. And we try and do these somewhere where it's fairly close to where there's public footpath because it really is quite a good shop window for the ramblers and all those, they see these things. And it's amazing how, how this gets talked about in the pubs at night about all these wonderful flowers we've seen. And, and, and I've even gone to the trouble of getting old scrap, because I'm into old vintage machinery, getting old scrap drills and things of that nature. And, and taking it off and making a seat out of it and, and putting it on the side of the footpath. Um, fortunately, the one worry I was, is it's going to be a load of litter dump now. It hasn't actually happened much yet, like, you know. But this is what I like to do, is to try and, you know, present farming as, as, a, as a big shop window. And, and the heritage we, we, we're now working, I've got a meeting for next week, we're looking to, to, to work with a, a local stone ground miller and try and do a bit of local market. It's only a very small scale, but I do like this local produce for local area idea. And, and I think one of, the, one of the biggest problems we've got in this world is transportation. Everything is moved too far, whether it be people, uh, commodities or anything. Uh, and I think the one biggest reason this, this planet is so polluted is because everything is being moved so far half the time. And that's one thing I'd like to see us try and address to, to, you know, rather than going back to the carbon, sequestrating all this carbon, let's try and produce a bit less of it. If it's the ogre we say it's going to be. It seems to me to be the wrong approach. I don't see why we should be using good farmland as basically a landfill site for, for, for the waste, <laughs> waste of all the public, or all, all these things we're doing. Like, let's try and reduce that a little bit. Uh, as well as, you know, we've got to approach this from all different angles, really, I think, right? You know, not just focus on one control. But that's, you know, I do a lot of different things, but that's one good example, I think, of what I like to do, because I think we do need to try and get the support uh, 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 of the general public on our side. We get a lot of bad press. So let's try and show ourselves up in a good light, really. That's where I come from, anyway. <laughs> I think the Heritage Week one, John, is a, is a really interesting one. We've, we're playing around with a couple of varieties here, Red Lammas and April Bearded, um, just to, um, again, like you say, just uh, reduce food miles and potentially produce something that's got a slightly higher quality in terms of its nutritional value. Um, but um, I, I guess there's a couple, uh, sort of cover cropping for me has been really exciting. We've been doing it for sort of probably about eight years now. And each year we try to come up with different ideas to fix different issues on different soil types in different parts of the rotation. Um, but last year um, we had a couple of fields that we fallowed um, and we put um, a sunflower mix. Um, there was buckwheat, phacelia, mustard, vetches, crimson clover, turnips, fodder radish, loads of things in there. And the amount of public um, goodwill that that generated, there were people walking down off the hill carrying armfuls of sunflowers. I probably should have been charging them a pound to go for it. Um, 
but that was fantastic. But the other thing that we put in last year uh, as a result of a bit of a failure with um, with some quinoa that didn't make it, it got frosted off in April, was to put some micro clover um, in and, and running that as an understory um, through the rotation. At the moment, we're right at the start of that journey. I've been looking to do that for a couple of years and this was an opportunity to do that. So um, this clover only gets about six inches tall before it flowers. We topped it, we got some grazing off it, direct drilled wheat into it, um, and it's sitting in there quite happily at the moment. And in terms of um, sort of reduction credits in nitrogen that we we'll hopefully won't be needing to apply over the, over the course of the rotation, the fact that as soon as that crop comes off, we can put a load of sheep on it. We've got an instant cover crop all through the winter, capturing nutrition, intercepting rainfall, all those things. Um, is something that's really exciting. Um, so we'll see how that sort of develops. It's early days, but it looks it looks very good at the moment, other than I might have slightly undercooked the amount of nitrogen I need to put on it this year, but we have to learn as we, as we go, really. And did, did the um, clover establish okay? Because I know a fair few farmers have been wanting to try it, but they're worried about kind of establishment and getting it going. Yeah, it was... It, uh, we established it, um, so we had all the really dry, cold April. We had a very wet May, and then we drilled it at the beginning of June. Um, we topped it to tiller it, and then we grazed it with sheep all through August, um, sort of mob grazed it and, and sort of moved them along as they went. And then we started planting wheat in there 4th of October, and the last bit we did mid-November, which was amazing that it carried the equipment right the way through till then. Um, so... It, it's, you know, looking at the the sort of the whole farm picture, if you like, that integrated livestock on arable fields um, sort of idea, um, it's worked really, really well. We've we've actually under-sown red, uh, sorry, the white clover. It's a, it's a white clover um, in the quinoa this spring as well, which we did uh, a week ago, week tomorrow ago. So we'll see how that sort of develops in that under-sown under sort of scenario as well, whether that will be quite as good um but last year it was a result of you know the quinoa failed right this is an opportunity to do it so we, we've got to take positives out of um experiments that you know that go wrong or that things don't quite work to plan um i had a great expression the other uh, the other week from somebody in america saying we don't have failures we just have consequences that we did not expect um and i'm i'm gonna go for that i think <laughs> in all walks of life <laughs> absolutely and Jonathan um you took on your farm at a very young age so you've probably had the longest career in farming out of everyone on our panel today so you've obviously seen the ebbs and flows the industry has experienced through the years how do you feel about the way of the world at the moment is there still room for optimism and opportunity in arable farming do you think I think that when we become pessimists, we've lost the battle, quite honestly. One has to maintain that optimism. I've lived through some very changing times. Like I went to agricultural college in, in, in the mid-60s, and the message then, there was nothing to do with conservation. It was produce, produce, produce. Now, people of my generation are finding it rather difficult to adapt to the modern thinking of all this environmentally friendly farming and all that because, I mean, you know, it was a legacy of the old war years, obviously, when the country was going hungry. So, yes, in essence, I, I, I think I am very optimistic. 
because for two reasons we produce food and there's going to be an ever increasing demand for that I, I mean at the end of the day what is the last thing that a human being is going to stop doing it's going to be eating I would think and drinking so whilst we're always at the bottom of the pile that's only because we've done our job too well and, and, and kept a lot of cheap food on the table so I, I, I feel very confident that the more people are on the planet, the more they're going to eat. Let us address the problem and make sure that we in this country produce as much as ever we can. And we are capable of it, but at the same time, let's make a good job of it and not wreck the environment in the process. And that's where, that, that's, that's where my optimism comes from. Uh, and these younger men will be even better at it than I am because they've grown up in a slightly different generation like which is more in tune with it like these computers i mean my first one was probably steam powered <laughs> <laughs> i can honestly say i started climbing with a tractor with a starting hand left in the front and now i've got one with a blooming touch screen in it so the changes i've seen is just a, and it takes a bit of getting <laughs> keeping in tune with quite honestly but it's the challenge is wonderful you know you've just got to keep keep abreast with, 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 with the moving times. <laughs> How about you, Andrew? Are you feeling optimistic for the future? Yeah, definitely. I, I, on see a trend, we're going down in age order, aren't we? So, Jake, you're obviously the baby of the panel. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I wish I was 20 years younger. I think it's it's really exciting times at the minute. I, you know, I love challenges uh, and opportunity. I think... Um, I think we need to work out, uh, and I agree, you know, I work on the core principle people are going to have to eat. You know, it's a fundamental requirement uh, of the human race. So they need to eat. We're going to need a, a healthy environment around us to sustain us, uh, uh, you know, as a species for a, for hopefully a very long period of time. What we've just got to work out is what do those two things look like and how are we going to achieve it? So I think the opportunity now is for the people that are coming into the industry to really get to grips with that as a challenge, because it is a really big challenge. The two need to work hand in hand and not contradict each other. So, um, yeah, and the, the speed of change, as John says, you know, it's 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 absolutely phenomenal at the moment. It's almost almost too quick, you know, almost some things that are um, outstripping um, uh, they're going too fast, so they they outstrip your knowledge. So, in terms of where this technology keeps coming at us. It's these unintended consequences. They're the one thing that worries me is that, that everybody doesn't sort of all rush like lemons in a certain direction and then suddenly realise, oh, goodness, you know, I've, I've, I've really made a mess of my productive land for a long period of time because we can't unwrap it like we used to be able to. So, so I think the um, farming skills are, are going to have to be wider and going to have to be better and better as they go forward because some of the things how we used to the get out of jail card you know, they don't exist anymore. So farmers are going to have to be ever more skilled uh, and ever more in innovative, I think. Yeah, definitely. And what about you, Jake? Mm, I, I totally agree. Um, I think we we are definitely in a challenging uh, place at the moment. And it's uh, we mentioned it before, actually. It's the un uncertainty, it's an uncertainty or the unknowing to a lot of the decisions that we're trying to make. And, and a lot of it, I feel, is sort of trying to make them on the hoof to a degree. Um, and that, you know, you need to keep your wits around you. You need to have good contacts um, to be able to, you know, be flexible and 
mobile as a, as a business in terms of how we do things, what we're growing, who we're talking to, who we're dealing with, who we're selling to. Um, but with that challenge, there will be opportunities. And I think farming as we are farming, I think puts us in a really good place in terms of low cost of production, uh, not the highest output, but a very good profit margin you know, in between. And that's what we need to focus on quite significantly. Um, Andrew's dead right in terms of the next generation and what they're going to be faced with. And I just hope that the colleges and universities are prepping the next band of farm managers and um, uh, farming technicians, because that's what they're going to be called probably, um, into a digital world that is focused on high quality food production and improving the environment. Because, you know, to me, you know, you need to have that environment as healthy and as vibrant and as noisy and as brightly coloured as it possibly can be to make working and living and being in it all day sort of worthwhile. Um, I had a drive around this morning and this yellow hammer popped out of the hedge in front of me and it was the brightest male yellow hammer I'd seen in a long time. And I thought to myself, you know, that's actually what it's all about. Fantastic crop of rape. Um, and yellow hammers popping out of, of margins and hedgerows. And that's what it needs to be. Um, we just need to focus on that. But we do need government support, um, not to undermine what we're doing with bringing in cheap um, product from elsewhere that doesn't match the sort of standards that we're being asked to produce in. And I think uh, the government needs to be really careful about um, lowering food standards uh, on imported food. I, th I think we need to be quite robust as an industry um, and uh, and say that quite quite forcefully. So huge challenge, but lots of, lots of optimism as well. Good, that's what we like. And before I finish, I just wondered if any of you had any questions for each other. What was that fifth um, species in the margin? <laughs> Well, I'm going to dig myself out because I'm pretty sure I said five. <laughs> so I'm going to say mustard, radish, buckwheat, clover and phacelia. Uh, I didn't write mustard down. Ah, there we go. <laughs> I'm out of jail. Happy days. <laughs> I've just bought all that this a couple of days ago to put my plots in. So it's funny, isn't it? We all think alike, probably. I thought it was really interesting, actually, how when I asked you about your, you know, innovative product or whatever that you all said a biological thing rather than you know something a shiny piece of kit or some chemical product it's interesting isn't it how you are you're all on the same wavelength i think chemical chemical uh, products are a necessary evil unfortunately the more we can do without those the better but we can't totally do without them can we but uh, um, i think that's the way we've got to go I guess a question for Andrew, actually, in terms of challenges of labour um, going forward and where he feels robotics and automation can help in offsetting some of that challenge. Because I know it, it's it's massively, uh, you know, um, dangerous for the, the veg sector not getting products picked. So where, where do you see all the rest of that technology fitting in? I think it's um uh it's a difficult equation for businesses to make because the 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 capital um uh, sort of outlay required to get into uh, you know onto the bottom ladder of that kind of um uh, innovation is is huge uh, and I think that's where supply chains 
are going to have a part to play as whole supply chains to help fund that transition. Um, I think that um, we've introduced things like um, uh, optical graders on our onions and things like that. So we've we've de- we've taken labour off of graders, which is one that's um, probably um, it's probably the easiest to introduce. I think um, it is costly, but I think you see the quickest wins because you know you can our throughput has tripled. You know we're recovering a lot more crop. We're we're grading crop to the standard the same minute of every day. Whereas with people, you know, they get tired and, you know, different things around breaks and, and what have you. So I, I think that there's a danger that the lack of labour, it will actually, it'll create, um, well, it'll force um, force mechanisation. Uh, it will force um, the affordability of mechanisation. Um, but it'll mean that we require a very different labour force to look after that uh, mechanised environment rather than a, a physical environment. I think that customers have got a part to play in it because i think some of the solution is how food is presented you know it's all there we can harvest quite a lot of it mechanically but it means that it might not necessarily look the same or it might be um it might be presented differently to to minimize damage on it um and i think that you know the smart minds that design this kit are really moving moving very quickly uh, in this space but i think the customer customer's perception is going to have to change I'm not quite sure yet whether I see lots of little robots in fields as some people uh, envisage, because I just think um, that outlay and the lack of productivity from them is just too big. Um, you know, it's, it's still, when you look at the bottom line, you can still do a lot with a very big sprayer, uh, you know, on a good day with a good person, um, you know, and, and there are ways of minimising soil damage and, and mitigating that in terms of the technology that goes on those sprayers with GPS you know, um, weed eye dense, individual nozzle control. You know, they're they're really big step forward. So I think they're they're keeping the little robot drones at bay at the moment. And I'm not sure I see those really in the next five years or so, just purely because of uh, you know affordability. But I think mechanisation, automation, and robots will come in in other areas, not necessarily in just just the sort of field up and down replace a tractor type scenario. I think that will be last. But the other thing, sorry, to, to add to that is that, you know, to Jake's point, we must get into these universities and schools and tell them what we need and what we think the industry needs. Uh, you know, we've, I've been in, a, uh, in, in an academy this afternoon talking to people about leaf and the way to farm, but also careers in farming and agriculture and, and in local businesses. We've really got to get in there and influence them because otherwise we're competing with everybody else for, a, you know, what's in, the, in a... It's a marketplace that is short, no matter what sector you're in, you're short. So we're competing. So how do we compete? We've got to sell what we do, but we've also got to make sure it's fit for purpose. Yeah, I think the opportunities in agriculture now are so diverse as well. You can, I mean, all the tech is so exciting and interesting. Someone that had never stepped foot on a farm could get a really good job there. So, yeah, we just need to push it out there. Excellent. Well, thank you. Um, It's been really interesting hearing from you all and all your different systems and plans for the future. Um, And I'm sure it's inspired our listeners as well. So thank you for sparing the time to chat with me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alice. And thank you to all of you at home that have tuned in. If Jake, Andrew and Jonathan have inspired you to enter yourself or maybe someone you know for the Arable Farmer of the Year Award, then head on over to britishfarmingawards.co.uk to find out how. And the team are always very happy to help anyone with their applications. Thank you again for tuning in and see you next time.